I'm Margaret Brennan, and welcome to Facing Forward. This week, spring back. The global economy is set to expand at the fastest pace in decades. Vaccines and trillions in pandemic-related government spending give a much-needed shot in the arm. We've decided to go big because we think that the risks are of severe scarring if we allow there to be long-term unemployment. But a new report by the International Monetary Fund warns of an unequal recovery around the world. We expect to see 95 million or more enter extreme poverty because of this crisis. Clearly, these are losses that we cannot uh, afford to suffer. And how will the U.S. and other rich countries pay for their recent spending sprees? Just ahead, a conversation with Gita Gopinath, chief economist at the International Monetary Fund, part of the financial arm of the U.N. that gives economies on the verge of collapse a lifeline. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Gita Gopinath, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to join you. So we were reading in, and one of the things that stood out was this Vogue magazine profile of you calling you a feminist icon. What is it like uh, to be the first chief economist at the IMF who happens to be a woman? Well, I mean, it's a, a, a tremendous honor uh, to have this position, though I don't think they had to wait this long to get a woman to be a chief economist. There were <laughs> many wonderful economists, women economists that preceded me could have done, done this job just as well. So I'm actually, I'm actually very you know, grateful to uh, Christine Lagarde, who was a former managing director who hired me there and said, you know, it's about time that we end this uh, male dominance uh, in chief economist uh, roles. So how do you explain or how did you explain what the IMF does to your mother when you got the job? I think it's going to be impossible. But uh, <laughs> what, what, what you know, there is uh, uh, something I can point to her as, a, as the an example, because in 1991, when India had a, a financial crisis, uh, at that time, uh, the IMF had come into India and provided financing, and that was actually the start of some very important reforms in India. So she has heard of the IMF in that sense, and she, you know, I could jog her memory, and she was like, ah, yes, now I remember. Okay. So, I mean, for listeners, just to set the table, so the institution you help run as chief economist was created basically to help keep the global economy stable and to avoid the kind of disasters that we saw contribute to World War II. So, so times of crisis is really what the IMF was created to help avoid or, or get us out of. So like a year ago, we're all standing on the brink of the abyss with this great lockdown, as you called it. And now a year later, you are looking at the world and saying, we're going to grow, that the economy is actually looking like it's headed in a positive direction. What went right? 
lots of things were really uh, tough about uh, last year in terms of the pandemic and the lives that were lost. But what did go right was that policy support really stepped up. Uh, and the mistakes uh, that were made after the global financial crisis were not repeated again. Uh, there was about $16 trillion that were deployed uh, and put in the system, uh, way more than anything that was done after the global financial crisis. And I think that was one very important uh, measure that helped put a floor on the collapse, including what central banks did, of course, in, in, pre in preventing uh, a global financial crisis this time around. So I think these measures were really important to bring the world back from uh, the brink of even greater collapse and, you know, we avoided the Great Depression. So when you look at what happened after COVID-19 and that recession, you said it's likely to leave smaller scars than the 2008 global financial crisis. So when I think back to the crisis, the thing that I think sticks with a lot of Americans is how long it took to recover the jobs. It took a decade in America to regain that ground. How long do you think it'll take America this time to get back to even? Right now, uh, based on our projections, uh, that should happen uh, next year uh, in terms of bringing back the unemployment rate to where it was uh, pre-pandemic uh, and also bringing back some of the workers who left the labor force because they just caught, kind of lost hope. Uh, so to bring back the labor force uh, participation rate. So I think next year would be the year when we would see a, a fairly full recovery in the U.S. labor market. So this is before we factor in the trillions more in spending that the Biden administration is now proposing Americans help pump into the, the U.S. economy. Do you think what you're seeing with this growth is real, that it's not just a sugar high? Now, given the large number of people who are unemployed, uh, you know, and still looking for work, there is a lot of what we call slack in the in the economy. Many people who have lost their livelihoods, uh, and they need to be brought back. Uh, they need to regain their jobs. Uh, women have been hard hit. We need to bring back women into the workforce. So the spending that's been done to bring back a strong recovery, fast recovery, uh, is, is real. I mean, it is what uh, we will see in terms of uh, improved uh, employment numbers, uh, in improved livelihoods, uh, improved income. So, I, I mean, this, is, this was needed. Growth, though, you're saying around the world isn't going to be even. It's, it's not going to be clear sailing for everyone. You've called it the great divergence. Um, what are the consequences of that, of this being kind of an uneven global recovery? What this is doing, if you look at uh, our projections for uh, different parts of the world, you know, while advanced economies in the U.S. included are expected to do just fine, we have uh, emerging markets and low-income countries that are getting hit very hard in terms of per capita income losses. Uh, and this is really troubling because it's reversing the progress that was made over the last uh, couple of decades in terms of uh, reduction in poverty. We expect to see 95 million or more enter extreme poverty because of this crisis. Uh, and you know, clearly these are losses that we cannot uh, afford to suffer. Uh, and similarly, as you're going to see lack of convergence uh, in prospects 
for countries around the world. Before this crisis, we had many emerging and developing economies that were converging to uh, rich country income levels, uh, and that has been set back severely uh, by this crisis. What parts of the world are you worried about? If you look at the Latin America region as a whole, and you look at the hit to their uh, uh, output or their income, uh, in 2024, relative to where they would have been in the absence of the pandemic, we're talking about losses of around 6 to 7% of GDP. Similarly, in um, emerging Asia, excluding China, that hit is around 8%. Sub-Saharan Africa, the losses are around 6 to 7%. So, you know, in many parts of the world, we are seeing these kinds of long, long-term scarring effects. Uh, which is really troubling because most of these countries already are starting out at lower per capita income levels than, of course, the rich world. Mm -hmm. And in real world terms, that means it's tougher to put food on the table. That means it's really impacting people's ability to survive. What kind of political implications are, are you seeing here? Are you predicting instability? We're not predicting instability at this point, but if we don't rectify this uh, great divergence, uh, and if people, you know, if countries actually fall back uh, tremendously in terms of increased poverty, then that would in, uh, re, uh, lead to social unrest, uh, and that is a major issue. It can lead to geopolitical uh, concerns, and so that is something that the world needs to worry about. Which is why we said now is the time for the international community to do everything it can to prevent this great divergence. Social unrest, I mean, that can mean a lot of different things. Here in America, after the financial crisis, there was like this massive distrust of institutions. You know, you had the Tea Party movement, you had Occupy Wall Street on you know, both sides of the political divide. In Europe, you had nationalist groups that kind of came to the fore. Do you think we know yet what the impact of this recession driven by the pandemic will be. Do we have a sense yet? You know, we have a sense. Yes, we do. We have, uh, uh, you know, our projections for the amount of scarring that will happen. And this time around, it's in advanced economies. It's, it's, it's projected to be quite small relative to, again, after the global financial crisis. But that said, you know, we still have the pandemic. Uh, it isn't over yet. Uh, and if there is a newer virus uh, mutation that makes the vaccines ineffective, then that, I think, is a huge downside risk. And so if we have an even longer prolonged pandemic, I think we're looking at much more severe problems. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's why the number one priority has to be everywhere in the world to get uh, vaccinations done. So it's the virus and the vaccine that determine everything right now. Absolutely. I think it has been the case for the last uh, you know, year and over that. So we had the co-head of COVAX, you know, with part of this global initiative to get vaccines or into countries around the world. He was with us on Face the Nation and he said they've placed 
billions of, you know, orders for billions of doses. They've got billions of dollars in financial support, but they can't actually get their hands on vaccine. The majority of those are coming in the second half of the year. And in the first half of the year, there, because of vaccine nationalism, has meant that there are less doses available. So that's our biggest challenge now. If we had more doses, we could make those available. How significant a delay is something like that to how you see the world? I think this is extremely costly. Uh, you know, we uh, uh, crunched some numbers and we said, if you could get vaccinations to go much faster, then that would add $9 trillion to the global economy between now and 2024. Uh, and about 40% of that $9 trillion would be a benefit to advanced economies that would come from just bringing back uh, all parts of the world from the abyss. And so it is It is a big loss. Every month of delay is a big loss to the global economy and, of course, to individual lives. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is, again, in terms of the, the absolute top agenda items, both at the national and the international level, just getting vaccinations, much more widespread vaccinations is just absolutely at the top. Keita, stay with us. We're going to take a, a quick break. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We're working with G20 nations to agree to a global minimum corporate tax rate that can stop the race to the bottom. Together, we can use a global minimum tax to make sure the global economy thrives based on a more level playing field in the taxation of multinational corporations and spurs innovation, growth, and prosperity. So the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, said this week that one way the Biden administration plans to pay for at least part of this proposed trillions of new spending packages that they're going to put forward by proposing a global minimum corporate tax rate. To the average person at home, that doesn't really sound like anything concrete. Gita, do you have any idea how this would work? You know, so the IMF actually has uh, for a while uh, been arguing for the need to have a global minimum corporate tax rate. What that basically means is where all nations in the world agree that the corporate rate at which they tax their corporations, uh, you know, there will be some minimum level uh, above which their rates will be. So it's not as if there's a race to the bottom and everybody is not trying to bring down tax rates to the lowest possible level, because what that means is you end up with uh, companies basically, uh, you know, shifting their 
locations artificially to benefit from lower tax rates. And so to avoid this kind of race to the bottom, having a floor in terms of having a, a common minimum level of corporate taxation uh, would be very valuable. So this is to stop companies from um, essentially shopping around for a cheaper deal in another country. That's right. Exactly. And so then going and look, you know, in some sense, doing the financial engineering that's needed so that they end up paying very low taxes in some part of the world, quite disconnected from where it is that they actually make a lot of their revenues. So isn't there a downside, though, in some ways? I mean, like Ireland, for example, has this 12.5% corporate tax rate. The U.S. is talking about raising um, the global minimum to 21%. If you raise it, doesn't that hurt countries, smaller countries like Ireland that that basically you know, rely on having these companies come to them because they charge this lower rate? Well, there is uh, indeed a, this very challenging issue of what exactly should be the corporate tax minimum rate. Uh, and indeed, 21% is would be high relative to what we're seeing around the world. Now, we don't have a, a prescription in terms of what that uh, number should be, uh, but to get to cooperation and actually to get countries to agree on any kind of a, a minimum, obviously, you know, they will have to negotiate with each other to agree on what that level should be. Uh, but yes, this is not an easy uh you know, agreement to make happen at all for the reasons that you just mentioned. Right. So the Biden administration's proposal here is based on a premise of something that's actually already really complicated to get to. You know, this is not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination yet. No, but, it's, not, it's certainly not. No. So the U.S. is the largest financial contributor to the IMF. And, and for Americans who, you know, are frustrated with what's happening in their own backyard right now. And they see supporting institutions like the IMF as kind of subsidizing the rest of the world. How do you explain to them why what the IMF is doing is necessary? Well, I would just say that uh, it's absolutely crucial for the health of the U.S. economy, for the people in the U.S. in terms of their jobs and their livelihoods, what is happening in the rest of the world. Uh, the U.S. trades with many countries. It uh, re receives investments from different parts of the world. Uh, and so uh, having a healthy global economy, having everybody else outside the U.S. You know, be in a, in a healthy setup uh, is very, very important for uh, the economic prosperity of the U.S. Uh, and also not you know, to avoid uh, geopolitical crises, tensions around the world, again, from a security perspective too. I think it's very important to have a world uh, that is prosperous and is stable, uh, which is what exactly the IMF uh, strives to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this crisis will change how governments around the world respond to economic problems like this? I mean, it, it kind of blows my mind when you think of how much money we are talking about right now. We've kind of normalized the word trillion. <laughs> there have been trillions of dollars spent to dig us out of this hole. Like what, do we have a sense yet of how things have changed? Indeed, I think there is um, a, a big sea change in uh, the, the, you know, the desire, the capacity, the, the, the demands on governments uh, to uh, step up. And in this crisis, 
Uh, they did many things that were right and were absolutely essential for dealing with this crisis. I mean, the way I think about it is there is a lot of uh, unfinished business that the governments had even preceding this crisis, uh, which is to make sure that all people in their country have access to basic public services like universal health care, you know, high quality education. Uh, and uh, I think, and you know, a, a good social safety net. Uh, and we know that countries that had all of this have been able to deal with this pandemic much better than those that did not. Uh, and so again, I would hope that coming out of this crisis, uh, countries will finish this business of, of providing basic uh, public services at the level and quality that's needed, uh, making sure that you have a way of uh, supporting poorer households, that they get the right kinds of opportunities, that you actually bring down inequality, which has gone up quite substantially. So, you know, this is the direction in which the world is moving towards building a more uh, greener, uh, more inclusive, uh, uh, you know, uh, economies. So it's not just getting back to even, it's totally remaking the system in some ways. I think it, it has accelerated what needed to be done. Uh, and, you know, inequality preceded this crisis, climate change preceded this crisis. Uh, but I think everybody now realizes that these cannot be left unaddressed. Uh, and and I see this as quite a fundamental change after this crisis. We have Janet Yellen, the first female Treasury Secretary, who before that was the first female head of the Federal Reserve. Christine Lagarde, head of the European Central Bank, head of the IMF, also female. And we're at, in a crisis that has impacted women in a way we just have not seen before in history. What do you make of that kind of unique timing? Do you feel like there's a reason <laughs> that um, all of this is kind of coming together at once. Do you feel like you need to use your position to fix this particular part of the problem? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the big pluses of having women, women in senior positions is that they scream out when there are issues uh, that affect women specifically. I think that's been a problem in the past. So I think there's a very strong common message coming out of multiple institutions saying that women are being harder hit in this crisis. You will need to provide targeted support when you have the recovery going on. It's not enough to say that, okay, the unemployment rate has come down. You have to make sure that women are coming back into the labor force, that they haven't left the labor force on a permanent basis, that they are absolutely essential for the recovery for the global economy. Uh, and so I think uh, you know these, these are the messages we will continue to put out there. Uh, and my hope is that, uh, you know, concrete actions will be taken. The World Economic Forum said it was like a generation of progress that has been lost. Do, or, do you have that dire prediction for women? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I am, of course, deeply concerned by uh, the lost, uh, you know, jobs of women and the fact that because they still continue to be the main, main caregivers, whenever schools have shut down, they are the ones who've been most uh, hard hit. Uh, but again, what we are seeing in terms of the recovery is that as contact intensive services sectors are uh, reopening, uh, you know, your restaurants are reopening, uh, people are traveling again, uh, these are sectors that hire a lot of women and you can see that women employment rates are coming back up. So. I, I remain optimistic that we can fix this. And just like 
we are trying in every other dimension not to leave big scars from this crisis. I think, again, this in the, in the matter of women, that is one area in which we're also working very hard. Gita Gopinath, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Margaret. We're going to take a quick break. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now to an underreported issue. White evangelical Christians are among one of the largest religious communities in the U.S. least likely to get the COVID vaccine. According to a recent Pew Research Center survey, 45% of that group say they definitely or probably would not get the vaccine. Skepticism remains high in the community and the reasons vary. Postings on social media show objections to the distant connection to aborted fetal tissue, particularly with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Others distrust the federal government and pharmaceutical companies or just object to vaccination on religious grounds. My name is Curtis Chang. I'm a former pastor. Our video series seeks to help Christians think biblically about the vaccine. Church leaders like Curtis Chang are stepping up to persuade followers to take the shot. It's important to think about the vaccine from a Christian perspective because a sizable number of believers have indicated they're suspicious of the vaccine. This month, the Ad Council announced a new partnership with a COVID collaborative and Chang's project, ChristiansandTheVaccine.com. CBS News has learned that the Biden administration has started partnering with faith leaders to help them reach congregants. So far, only 19% of the total population is fully vaccinated. Dr. Fauci estimates that reaching herd immunity will require 70 to 90% of the population to comply. Overcoming vaccine hesitation is key to putting the pandemic behind us. Thank you for listening to Facing Forward. New episodes are available every Friday. Join us each week as we make sense of our changing world together. I'm Margaret Brennan. You can also find me on your CBS Network broadcast station Sunday mornings on Face the Nation or on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. Sundays, or through our Paramount Plus app. Facing Forward is produced by Face the Nation's Ann Shu, Richard Escobedo, and Kelsey Miklas. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platforms and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.